podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Today, another cup of coffee culture as I continue my conversation with Jonathan Morris, professor of history at the University of Hertfordshire in England and author of Coffee, a Global History. A quick refresher. In the previous episode, Jonathan told me how something called an espresso arose in Italy in the early years of the 20th century though the espresso as we know it today didn't really emerge until 50 years later. In the 1950s, espresso made its way to Soho in London, where a very hot cappuccino became the drink of choice for rebellious teenagers, muscling in on the much more British nice cup of tea. But how about the rest of the world? What was the coffee scene like in America in the 1950s? Embodied by... The, the diner, if you like, the diner coffee pot, the ever-refillable coffee. So you, you could go into the diner, they serve you coffee, and then throughout your meal, your coffee will be continuously topped up for three, the sort of the bottomless coffee. So this is the sort of kind of, you know, pour-over that sits on a coffee plate. It's made from a fairly weak filter, You're nearly always using Brazilian coffee, which does not really have much in the way of characteristics to it. So it's uh, very much a sort of a uh, an accompanying beverage. And indeed, there's part of that is quite distinctive in the American style that actually drinking coffee while eating, as opposed to, say, the Italian style, which would be drinking your coffee as a digestive after you've eaten. Yeah. And in uh, one thing that I've sort of discovered from my research is that during the Civil War, a huge amount of coffee was drunk by the American troops on the Union side. And, and it was quite, very much part of a strategy, again, for, for keeping those soldiers awake and keeping them happy. They would drink maybe 10 cups of coffee a day and they would drink coffee, they would brew up coffee and drink it with every meal. So it's a sort of quite, became quite an established way of drinking coffee. The coffee house notion didn't really exist that much. What existed was just, you know, catered coffee in the its environments. And then, of course, home coffee in the U.S. is the first mass market for for home coffee. It's very much this sort of, you know, canned coffee, pre-ground, uh, roasting ground coffee made with kind of filter or then percolator, which became very popular for a while, very distant from the kinds of coffee that we think of today. And how do you get from that to Starbucks? So, And why do you get from that to Starbucks? There's so much in that question, isn't there? But one thing that I think became obvious to some of the smaller independent coffee roasters in the United States was that, was that their market share was basically being continually eroded by bigger and bigger companies producing coffee at scale. So they were in a losing battle if they were just going to produce coffee that was competing for that everyday low cost point market. What they began to do was to try and reposition coffee as more of there also being a market for what they called specialty coffee, whether that was kind of initially it was very simple things like flavored coffee or coffee 
that was labeled as coming from one particular country or had one sort of several sort of, you know, uh, flavor characteristics. Starbucks, the original Starbucks people are part of that movement. The, the three founders were basically drop out, well, dropouts of graduates from Berkeley. They had hung around in the kind of the similar sort of uh, 60s coffee bars that grew up in San Francisco. And they became part of a movement that essentially sold coffee beans for consumption at home, but sold them as more of an upmarket product. Mm-hmm. The story goes... Um, that Schultz went on a trip. That's Howard Schultz, not one of the original founders, but the man today associated with Starbucks. His version of this is he went on a trip to Milan and Verona and saw Italian coffee culture in action at the bar, realized that this was something that you could create into a theatrical experience and brought it back and proposed doing this to Starbucks and through a series of commercial changes, he ended up becoming the guy who ran Starbucks. He started by introducing, a, a, well, it tells you a lot about the coffee bars that he must have visited in Italy. He wanted to do standing only espresso. He had supposedly he had an opera and his uh, on the background and uh, his service staff were dressed in dinner jackets and bow ties and so forth, uh, which didn't work. <laughs> and so the, the sort of the format arose, therefore, where he kind of maneuvered to a more American style format of place that you could sit, place that you could, uh, you know, take time, but retained these Italian style beverages. And I would say Italian style because, of course, the theater comes not from the espresso, but from everything that goes on top of that. Yeah. You know, we can go into the micro details because there are certainly other people who had a, who were doing that kind of thing already. But obviously, that's the kind of the key to the story is this understanding of how you could use espresso and the, the, the espresso machines, really, and the way that coffees that they produce to provide an underpin for a retail environment that was in itself welcoming and once you've got that together by repositioning coffee as what i would call a kind of a premium product a lifestyle product the next phase of that is branding that product so starbucks was obviously fantastic at reproducing this from place to place then it's possible to sort of create what we might call the the, the international coffee shop format i find it almost incredible that an american coffee shop can be one of the centers for a situation comedy like friends i mean that 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 a a coffee shop should infiltrate the culture to that extent it's pretty remarkable yes i think there are some things there that are quite interesting also about the states in in terms of acceptability you would think, you know, in a in a British situation, comedy of that time, that kind of thing would always be set in a pub or a bar. Yep. But of course, the relationship with alcohol is is rather different in America. The drinking age is is usually twenty one rather than eighteen, so you already you have this kind of thing whereby people are socialised and social before they're really allowed to drink. 
there's a sort of sense of drink not necessarily being a good thing, and indeed it, it not necessarily is. And, of course, we know that the coffee shops have done very well at attracting customers who might be cautious of, for example, going into an American bar, not just non-drinkers, but customers like women, customers with young children. In a way, the coffee shop becomes the alternative venue that is open and accessible to those kinds of customers. So it's, it's sort of perceived as, um, I think, something that you can show on television, something you can make at the center of that, as something that's accessible to everybody and doesn't kind of alienate a certain group. There's, there's probably a, a PhD thesis to be written comparing and contrasting friends and cheers, but let, let's, leave that, <laughs> let's leave that aside for the yes, moment. Yes, and, and please come to me if you want to do it. Yeah. You come to me when you've done it. But um, yeah. what's the story of the flat white? Um, is, is that just being difficult in response to all the frothy coffees, or does it have cultural significance of its own? Uh, so this, this, is a, this is a really interesting one. So the flat white forms part of the kind of the retinue of the specialty coffee response to the growth of the uh, huge coffee chains. Specialty coffee... Has, is a kind of subculture to itself and has moved a lot further in terms of placing more and more emphasis on the quality of coffee, on the origin of coffee and so forth. And we could talk about how that works between specialty espresso and Italian espresso. But the flat white is really specialty's answer to the ever-increasing size of the cafe latte and the cappuccino because it's really about, number one, it's about the relationship between the coffee and the milk. So a flat white has less milk, more coffee. That's really the, the simplest way of thinking about it. The next thing about that is that it also has this special way of preparing the milk. And this is what they can call microfoaming. So made very well, a good flat white should have this kind of microphone top, which therefore won't dome like an airy cappuccino, but has some more consistency than a latte. It should taste quite velvety, really. It's also something on which you can perform latte art, you know, drawing different sort of um, patterns in with the milk. So all of this made it quite a, a prestige beverage for people who wanted to drink a milk coffee, but still taste their coffee, have a different ratio of coffee to, to milk and often a quite a strong coffee. So some of the original proponents, or, and we'll go back to what we mean by original in a minute, but some of the proponents of flat white, let's say, as a beverage, which really becomes popular in the sort of the second half of the 2000s onwards, uh, and is very much associated with Australia and New Zealand, they would sort of see this as a much better quality, a connoisseur-type quality milk beverage using specialty coffee. The origins of the flat white are, again, rather interesting. So there are, there are some stories which will tell you that this goes back to Australia in the 50s. Australasia really had its own sort of coffee 
moment. It has developed its own kind of culture. And that culture, there were sort of a similar thing of, you know, Italian immigrants. We know there were a lot of immigrants to Australia in the immediate post-war era who, who set up in Melbourne and Sydney and set up cafes. And some people say that, it, that the Australians didn't want a foamed cappuccino-like coffee. So when presented with that, they would ask for a flat white and they would just stick ordinary milk in it onto a, in, onto a black coffee. So imagine a black, uh, an Americano with milk, basically. Um, I can't find that when I look. When I look in Australia, the first real references I find to flat white are that during the early 80s, there seems to have been, for some reason, a thing when the, the milk that was being used to make cappuccinos wasn't throttling properly. And it, it's been suggested this was due to a change in the feed given to the cows or that the cows were moving in and out from grassland to straw or whatever. Anyway, the story goes, and it, and it seems verifiable, that several cafes would put up a thing which said, no cappuccinos here, only flat whites. So the actual kind of origin of the name seems rather less exotic <laughs> than, than we might think. So that's a rather complex story of the flat white. Uh, what the flat white isn't in any shape or form is an, is an Italian beverage. We go on and on about authenticity. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, I haven't even got into specialty espresso versus Italian espresso, no. which is a whole fo another story we could do, should you wish. <laughs> and I haven't got into um, Nespresso versus espresso. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I would say they do different jobs and they do them well. So Nespresso is not espresso in the sense that Nespresso, a standard Nespresso capsule has less coffee in it than a standard Italian espresso and is usually brewed to a slightly longer uh, shot size. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom line with Nespresso and with capsules is, of course, they're not made fresh at the point of service. And to me, that is the the essence of espresso. So the notion that, and it goes back to the authenticity, say, of, of, of Costa or Cafe Nero, they are grinding the coffee just before they put it in the filter holder for you to then have. So the coffee is very fresh. You're not getting that with an espresso. You're getting a very well-sealed coffee, gra already ground, uh, in your capsule, that will give you, you know, a good coffee experience, a very well-delivered coffee experience, but not quite the theatre or freshness of a, of a well-made espresso. And I, and I think that was about as diplomatic as I could be. Jonathan Morris. And the discount code on his book, Coffee, A Global History, is still available at Reaction Books. Just enter COFFEE20, COFFEE20 at the checkout. I'll put a link in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. My thanks to Jonathan Morris and to all the people who forego a coffee or two in order to support the show with a donation. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And it's always a treat to hear from you via email, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or tweet 
at Eat Podcast. Meanwhile, I think I'll go and lean on my AeroPress and pretend it's making me a real espresso. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.